Thank you, Beck. Good morning, everybody. Well, as we just pondered and just thought about, a question I'd love for you to be thinking about this morning is, what is the meaning of life? If you do a search on YouTube, uh, you'll find everything from... Uh, a Muslim spoken word telling you that it's about living to please Allah, to talks by atheists that say, well, this moment is the only one we've got. All of those, of course, are set to beautiful music and captivating visuals. (laughs) But it's the eternal question, isn't it? What is the meaning? What is the purpose of life? Why are you here? Why are we here? And I don't just mean here in the building, but why are we here on this revolving blue planet suspended in space? Kids who are with us, can any of you tell me why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Anyone? Suggestions? Yeah, still figuring that one out. <laughs> well, as you figure that out, kids, whatever it is you're doing this morning, whether you're coloring in or playing with things, keep an ear out for what the Bible has to say about the meaning of life this morning. Because I can guarantee you, the earlier you figure this out, the more it will save you from many problems in life. All right? And so obviously, for the, the nihilist, that is the person who believes that there is Nothing more to life, simply beyond the physical world and the here and now. What we experience in this moment is all that we've got for that person. Well, there's not really an answer to that question, is there? Or perhaps well, the answer is simply that, well, there is no why. We're just, we're just here. This is just what it is. For those who believe in Jesus... We understand that the purpose of life is to point to a being who is God in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who transcends all physical matter, who is beyond the entire universe in such a way that we cannot even fully comprehend Him. And yet, He is also a God who is deeply and intimately interested in us as human beings whom He made in His image. And for Christians, our lives are ones of constantly lifting our gaze, of constantly, daily reminding ourselves to look up, to lift our eyes, to lift our heads, to look to the King of all creation, the King of glory, to see His beauty, to see His loveliness, to see His glory, and remind ourselves that life is all about Him. In our passage this morning, Paul gives us a line that has become one that is commonly used to keep reminding ourselves of this truth. Now, uh, if you were here when we preached through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 just a few months ago, you might remember that I titled that sermon, Glorify God, brackets, in your body. I won't blame you if you didn't, because I didn't either. One of the reasons I did that is because... uh, 
after Paul addresses the issue of sexual immorality among, uh, amongst the Corinthians, he finishes that instruction by saying, glorify God in your body. Oh, let me, sorry, one sec. And uh, you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. And so the reason I titled this sermon similarly, uh, I did that intentionally, because there are some very interesting parallels between the way Paul addresses the issue of sexual immorality in chapter 6 with how he deals with the issue of idolatry here in chapters 8 to 10. And so we already saw uh, one of those last week in Paul's instruction to flee idolatry. You see there, they're the only two times he uses those, those terms in the book. Flee from sexual immorality, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so we're going to see a couple more of those examples as we explore this passage. And so as we explore the passage, uh, I have three points for you which can be made into one sentence. And it is basic, they are basically just words that are taken directly from the passage. And so the points are, do all to the glory of God, firstly, Secondly, by not seeking your own good, but the good of your neighbor. And thirdly, that they may be saved. So if you're taking notes, those are the three points for this morning. Do all to the glory of God by not seeking your own good, but the good of your neighbor, that they may be saved. So let's begin with point one. Do all to the glory of God. Well, what is the chief end of man? Those who uh, grew up hearing this often are are ready to go with the answer. Another way to put that in modern English is what is the purpose of life? What is the chief end of man is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins. And that was written in 1648 by a bunch of pastors and theologians in, you guessed it, Westminster, England. What is the chief end of man? The answer given to that question from the Westminster Catechism is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The purpose of every person is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, if you look at the scripture cited by the Catechism, you'll find verse 31 from our passage today. Have that in your Bibles. And of course, that makes a lot of sense because uh, that verse is very explicit and all-encompassing in what Paul is talking about there. He says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, obviously, this is written in context and reading and understanding the Bible in context is extremely important if you want to interpret it faithfully and not just create your own religion. And in context, Paul is, as we've looked over the last few months, talking about the eating of food and drink, and he's specifically talking about the eating of food and drink that has been offered to idols. And even more specifically, he is addressing in chapters 8 to 10 how to rightly think about whether that's okay to do or not depending on the situation. And so that's why verse 31 begins with, so whatever, whether you eat or drink, he's, he's addressing that particular issue that he's talked about these last 
couple of chapters. But it's important to realize that the Westminster Shorter Catechism can legitimately quote this verse for the first question because, yes, even in that context, Paul is widening that out to everything. He's saying, whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Johann Sebastian Bach, you may have heard of him. He's a well-known 18th century composer. Whenever he was satisfied with a piece of music that he'd written, he would write the letters S-D-G at the bottom of his piece of music. Or sometimes he would simply write what those letters stood for, which is Soli Deo Gloria, which in Latin means to the glory of God alone. Bach understood something that Christians understand and have understood right throughout the ages, that everything we do is done to the glory of God alone. I went into bat for calling our church Soli Deo Gloria Church. It uh, did not win the day. And many Christians still adopt this practice. They will write SDG at the end of things that they've written. I sometimes write it at the end of an email. And it's a good way for us to remind ourselves that in everything we do, every piece of art created, or every hour clocked at work, or every book studied, or every meal enjoyed, every child encouraged, every friend served, every suffering endured, everything is done to the glory of one. That one is not this one. It's not that one. It's to God alone. Is that, is that how you live? Over the last few weeks, uh, as we've preached through these chapters, we've seen how God is making it clear to us that we are to flee idolatry. Uh, if you didn't grasp that over the last few weeks, let's keep talking about it. But we've spent a lot of long time already talking about how that is a necessary part of the Christian life. We are to flee idolatry. And that God is jealous and He will not share His glory or our hearts with anyone else. Well, here we get the other side of the coin. We flee idolatry and we run to Him. We smash idols in our hearts and we put God in their place. We tear down the high places in our hearts and we glorify God in everything that we do. The act of fleeing idolatry is an act of glorifying God. And that makes sense, doesn't it? After all, what is idolatry except the glorifying and the worship of things other than God? To glorify God is the equal and opposite reaction to glorifying idols. And so the orientation of the Christian's life is one that is always, always Godward. 
He is the one that we live for. He is the one that we dedicate everything to. And He is the one that we seek to please in all that we do in our lives. And so even though verse 31 is at the end of our passage or towards the end of our passage, I made it the first point so that we can see that this is where the passage and indeed all of this talk about idolatry and eating and drinking is leading towards. And so this is the header statement. This is the lead duck at the front of the flying V. Whether it's destroying idols or growing in the fruit of the Spirit, whether it's encouraging one another, evangelizing our friends and neighbors, going to work or going to school, all of it is done for this one purpose, to the glory of God alone. That is the chief end of man. That is the reason we are here. We must glorify God in every situation. But, speaking of situations, Paul talks about one right here, doesn't he? And so let's go to point two. Do all to the glory of God by not seeking your own good, but the good of your neighbor. Let's read verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Uh, So as I signposted at the start, here is yet another parallel between chapter 6 and this passage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, we read a very, very similar phrase. And so the translations have put these in quotation marks to indicate that these were slogans that were phrases that your average Corinthian would say on different occasions. And these uh, Corinthians in the church were actually starting to adopt these phrases, these slogans, to justify their own sin. In chapter 6, they were using it, Paul was addressing the fact that they were using it to justify their sexual immorality, and here they're using it to justify their idolatry. But Paul shows that this is not the motivation of the Christian life. We don't live in so-called Christian freedom which allows us to do whatever we want. And we've seen this all the way along the letter, haven't we? Whether it's to do with uh, divisions in church, whether it's to do with lawsuits among believers, whether it's about taking the Lord's Supper, the Christian follows Christ in laying down their lives for others. And that's exactly where Paul goes in verse 24. Let's read. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And Paul uses the word neighbor here instead of the word brother to show that he is specifically talking about non-Christians. Now, obviously, uh, Christians still lay down their lives for their brothers and sisters uh, in Christ, but here he's about to elaborate on how we do this for the good of our neighbors. And of course, we know from Jesus in Luke 10, when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan that our neighbors are all those around us. And yes, that includes even those we might consider our bitter enemies. We are to seek the good of our neighbor over our good. 
over our good. And yes, this has broad application and what that looks like needs to be considered in the whole context of all of Scripture. You notice Paul is, is not saying we seek the good of our neighbor to the exclusion of ourselves. And he says, but over our good. Paul's point is, as it is so often in Scripture, that Christians naturally have, by the power of the Spirit, a preference for self-sacrifice and putting others before themselves. That Christians, by the power of the Spirit, have a preference for self-sacrifice and putting others before themselves. And this is evidence in the life of the church, or at least it is, it is meant to be. As brothers and sisters, we give up time to watch each other's kids and to make meals for one another, to do lunches with each other, to serve one another, to help those in need financially. And as we read in the rest of the passage, it is evident in the way that we interact with our neighbors. So let's read from verse 25. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So let's set the scene here. In Corinth, some of the leftover meat that was sacrificed in the temples could be sold in the marketplace. Uh, it's not, the marketplace didn't have all temple meat, but it certainly could have been sold there and purchased just as meat. And this is what Paul is talking about in verse 25. And there he says that if you buy such meat, or if that meat is served up to you, then you, you don't have to worry about it. That meat is, it's not defiled. It's not like the fact that it's come from the temple has somehow now made it Satan's meat. Paul is saying, hey, your conscience doesn't need to be harmed with regard to this meat. But that raises a question, doesn't it? What is your conscience? Now, kids, can any of you tell me what is your conscience? You can do it, bud? Oh, no, you're talking about something else. Anyone? Anyone know what a conscience is? Well, let me explain it for you, kiddies. The way Paul uses the word conscience here indicates... Uh, he, he's talking about our sense of what is right or wrong. Our sense of what is right or wrong. And the Bible is quite clear that to disobey your conscience is sin. This is what we saw in chapter 8, uh, in verses 11 to 12, where the brother who was made to sin against his conscience was destroyed. And the reason that it is sin, whether or not it's actually the right thing to do or not, whether, whether the thing that you feel is right or wrong is actually right or wrong, the reason it's sin is because 
If you intentionally go against it, if you intentionally disobey your conscience, then you are intending to sin. So, for example, if you believe that it is wrong to go to pubs, then to go to to a pub and to go against your own conscience is sin because it is your intention to do the wrong thing. Now, that's not the end of the story, uh, which is the reason why Paul gives this instruction in verse 27. You see, your conscience also might be out of kilter. might be just a little bit out of whack. You might be thinking that something is right or wrong without having assessed it by the light of Scripture. Or perhaps you've thought that Scripture says more or less than it really does about a certain thing. And so the point is that you ought to obey your conscience and you ought to also keep aligning your conscience with the Word of God. You ought to obey your conscience, but you also ought to consistently, continuously align your conscience with what the Word of God teaches. And so all of us must continue to do this and must continue to seek the Holy Spirit's renewal of our hearts and our minds. This is one of the reasons that our church has a statement of faith and why we ask any new members who would like to join our church to ensure that they've read it and that they understand it and that they agree with it. And we will happily spend as long as it takes to teach, to discuss, to go to the Word, to show you why we think that these things are important to have in our statement. Because we certainly don't want to encourage you to be sinning against your conscience by signing something that you don't actually agree with. On top of that, our elders are always inviting feedback on our understanding of the Word to ensure that we are interpreting it rightly. If something in our statement of faith turns out to be wrong, we will gladly align it to Scripture. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, conscience later, but for now the point is that you have a conscience and you must continue to align your conscience with the Word of God. And you should obey it. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's instructing them, about their consciences and telling them he's he's seeking to align the Corinthians' consciences with regard to this meat by saying they need not worry about meat that has been bought at the marketplace. Even if it might have come from the temple, it doesn't matter. You don't need to find the source. You don't need to chase it down and say, oh, I'm not sure. He's saying it's okay. You can eat it. And Paul points proves his point by citing verse 1 of Psalm 24, which we read earlier. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Paul is saying, everything belongs to God, therefore, everything is acceptable to eat. Now, interestingly, this was actually a verse that was commonly cited in rabbinic literature as uh, a way of thanking God before eating. And yet... Whereas the rabbis would have forbidden certain foods and they certainly would have forbidden meat that had come from the marketplace, 
Paul here is now citing the exact same verse to show that there is now no longer a restriction on the Christian as to what they can or cannot eat. My, uh, my eldest daughter, Eden, she loves animals. And some months ago, she asked me the question, why do we eat meat? Because I think the um, connection to the animals that she loves and the meat that was on her plate just finally collided, you know. <laughs> and so being the philosopher and theologian that she is, she asked me to give biblical reasons as to why it's okay for us to eat animals now. Well, to be honest, I, uh, I didn't have great answers at the time. I think I pointed maybe to Acts 10. Uh, I have since discovered that Mark 7.19 is a bit of a slam-dunk verse on this. But, you know, if you, if you ever have a, a child or a friend or a Seventh-day Adventist ask you the exact same question, you can also come to this verse in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul is clearly, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, he's once again showing the continuity between Israel and Christians by citing this verse, which, as I said, was commonly used before meals by rabbis. But he's also showing a radical discontinuity between Israel and Christians by showing that there are now no constraints on what foods we can or cannot eat as those who follow Christ. He's saying your conscience need not be pricked by this issue. Do you notice how much of a contrast this is to the passage from last week where Paul said that participating in the idol feasts at the temples was actually being in fellowship with demons? Well, Paul is actually, as we've seen right through chapters 8 to 10, being consistent in saying that the food itself isn't the problem. All things are the Lord's. It's the act of idolatry that's the problem. Eating food as part of an idolatrous act is sin. That is idolatry. But eating the food is not the issue. And so that's why Paul says, if you're invited to dinner by an unbeliever and you are disposed to go, which means it's up to you whether you want to go or not, then eat whatever it is that they serve you up. Regardless of where it's come from, regardless of what it is, you need not burden your conscience or feel like you're in sin because you're eating a certain type of meat. Now, you might have other reasons why you wouldn't eat meat. So, for example, uh, if you're at McDonald's and you're really not sure where that meat has come from or even what it is, uh, then, you know, I can see why you might have a legitimate reason not to eat it. Or perhaps you might have ethical objections to the way animals are treated and don't want, to, don't want to support that industry. There could be other reasons why you choose not to eat certain foods. But according to the Bible, you can eat any food before God with a clear conscience. Yes, it's okay to eat a halal snack pack from the local fish and chip shop that is owned by Muslims. That is totally fine. But, there is a but. Christians aren't governed only by whether they have the right to do something or not. 
Josh reminded us of that as he preached through chapter 9. And this is the point that Paul is getting to about acting for the good of your neighbour. Let's read from verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So let's return to that uh, scene in first century Corinth. Uh, Let's say my friend Horatio, uh, an excellent first century Corinth name, invites me over for dinner. I am disposed to go because he makes great Roman food. But then Brenda, who's another one of Horatio's guests, and she knows I'm a Christian, she thinks to herself, oh, oh, JR doesn't realise that this meat came from the marketplace. I better warn him, otherwise he's going to be doing something wrong. Well, she then proceeds to tell me that Horatio got it from the marketplace, thinking that she's helping me to do the right thing. Well, for Brenda's sake, Paul says, I should abstain from eating the meat. Because it is her conscience that is going to be confused if I then keep eating it. She will be scandalized by my partaking of it and my witness to her as a Christian will be damaged. And so Paul is saying, this is what seeking the good of your neighbor looks like. Now, there are some uh, very ready parallels to our day, aren't there? Even when it comes to food and drink. The halal snack pack, or the HSP, as the cool kids call it, might be an example. For the sake of others who might think that if I'm doing the wrong thing by eating that, well, then I won't do it. Another example is that some Christians think it's wrong to drink at all. Or others think that it's wrong for Christians to drink. Actually, the Bible teaches that it's a sin to get drunk and never puts a total ban on all alcohol. But we need to wisely consider, especially perhaps around those who are recovering from alcoholism, how we exercise such freedoms. Now, I get that this isn't a simple matter. Of course, we need to take into account all sorts of different factors. Perhaps, for example, your own temptation to get drunk or the fact that sometimes it might go the other way and that actually you will have more of an opportunity to to be a witness to your friends if you have a social drink with friends. I'm not suggesting uh, whether you eat an HSP or not or whether you drink alcohol or not is simply a clear-cut decision. But what I am saying is that if your eating and your drinking is going to confuse your witness as a Christian to unbelievers, then according to this passage, yes, out of love for your neighbour and out of a desire to seek their good and out of a desire to ultimately seek their salvation, then you shouldn't eat or drink. Not because you're not allowed to, but because your desire as a Christian ought to be their good and not your rights. 
That's verse 24. And this is an extremely small price to pay for the hope that your neighbor might come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Paying attention to our eating and drinking is one of the ways that we do all to the glory of God. Do you live that way? Do you seek others' good over your own? What legitimate rights as a Christian that you have are you unwilling to lay down for the sake of a friend coming to know Christ? What legitimate rights are you hesitant to give up out of love for your neighbor in a desire to see them come to know Christ? Does your love for them and does your desire to see them be saved by His incredible and amazing grace outweigh your love for your rights and your freedoms? Now, let me be clear here. Sure, uh, you can probably have a conversation with Brenda and explain it to her so that she understands it. All right? It's not like you just have to do that. And yes, this isn't to suggest also that what we just do is what other people think is right in order to win them over. Right? You, you, we're not seeking to change the truth in order to win somebody to the truth. Uh, if you do that, then you're losing the very truth that you hope to win people to. But the point is, as far as we are able, as far as we are able as Christians, we do not seek our own good, but the good of our neighbor. And that includes bending in areas where God gives us room to bend. It includes bending in areas where God gives us room to bend. And that, but that last sentence is, that's the rub, isn't it? Where does God give us room to bend? Well, this is where our word conscience comes back into play. Let me give you a very quick guide to help you think it through. Uh, some people and pastors and theologians have called this theological triage. Uh, and I promise I don't normally use examples from my kids very often, but it's just very apt today. Uh, yesterday, our youngest son's eye was leaning on the back of his chair and went too far, banged his head, ended up in the emergency department. Uh, and so he was there being triaged. And so triage, if you're unfamiliar with it, is the process of medical staff assessing who walks into the hospital and trying to figure out how serious and how urgent the issue is that, that is being presented to them in that moment. And so theological triage is doing the same thing with matters of the Christian faith. And so Christians often triage these issues through a set of three levels. And of course, you can subdivide these into different areas, but I'm just going to give you this usual set of three this morning. And so first, you have issues that are essential to Christianity. Uh, we can call these the, the inflexibles, all right? Meaning, if you try to bend on these issues, these matters of faith, if you try to bend them, you will break Christianity. 
So you can put the Trinity, the incarnation of Jesus, uh, his historical uh, death and resurrection, the gospel message that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Those are the sorts of uh, doctrines, faiths, beliefs that we have as Christians that are in this category of you try to bend those, you break the faith. We don't bend on those things. The Bible is clear that you don't bend on those things. Otherwise, you will break Christianity. In the second level, you have issues that aren't essential, but extremely important. These are the issues that are often the reasons why we have different denominations and are usually beliefs that are enough for Christians to say, actually, I cannot be a member of a church that teaches these things. Uh, We can call them for an incredibly unimaginative name, the mid-flexibles. So some, of, some examples of these beliefs you'll find in our church's statement of faith, such as the sovereignty of God, the inerrancy of Scripture, the baptism of believers, and complementarianism. Are there Christians who don't believe these things, who are genuinely saved? Absolutely, of course. Do we think for various reasons that they are important enough that they should be in our statement of faith? Yes, we do. We believe these things are important enough and that as a church we should agree on them. And of course, if you want to chat to one of our elders about the reasons why we think so, if you want some clarification on that, you want to keep exploring that, then we would love nothing more than to discuss those with you. And finally, in our third level, you have issues that Christians might disagree with, but can still be in the same church together. We might call these the, you guessed it, flexibles. Questions like whether a Christian should drink at all or not, or whether a man is allowed to have long hair, or that we should take communion every week, or whether an elder should wear shoes and a buttoned-up shirt to the gathering on Sunday. These are matters that members could have different views on, but they are willing to live with those disagreements because they're not matters that are sufficiently clear in Scripture to say that everyone must believe them. So those three levels of of theological triage, I think, are generally a helpful way of understanding how to apply this principle. And that's a really important thing for us to be thinking about because... If we put a matter in the wrong category, then we can be suffocatingly inflexible or we can be fatally flexible. And so we need to have continual conversation, continue going back to Scripture to seek the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit in order to know when something is a Christian right that we ought to lay down for the sake of our neighbours, and when something is a Christian truth that we ought to maintain and defend and proclaim. And such wrestling is, is likely something that we're going to continue to do our whole lives. And that's something that we'll especially have to do if you get sent to a part of the world that is very unchristian. Paul makes it clear that there are two things we ought to be thinking about as we wrestle with these issues. 
the good of our neighbour and our freedom as Christians. And this is why he returns to this point in the second half of verse 29, where he says, For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And Paul comes back here, he returns to the points that he made in verses 26 and 27, that actually my freedom isn't limited by what others think. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, and so therefore he's given us everything to eat. Paul actually would state it later like this in 1 Timothy 4.4, everything created by God is good, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. But the point that he's making is that as Christians, we willingly lay those freedoms down for the sake of others because of our hope that they might come to know Christ. And that brings us to the last point, that they may be saved. Brad told me this week about how when he's at work having lunch, He doesn't try to show how religious he is by closing his eyes and putting his hands together and praying in front of all of his workmates. He's aware that actually rather than making his work colleagues interested in Christianity, by doing that, he's he's going to send them the wrong message. And so even though he'd love to say a quiet grace before eating, and he certainly has the right to do that in Australia, he instead does so in his head rather than Uh, making a very obvious and visual display of his grace before he has lunch. And he does so in the hope that his workmates aren't put off by that and that hopefully it would provide opportunities for him to be able to share the gospel with them. Well, this is what our next verses are all about as they summarize this whole thing. Let's look at verses 32 and 33. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You you know, it would be easy to rip this verse out of its context to make it say something else. We could easily say, give no offence and try to please everyone, means uh, always do what you need to do in order to make sure that nobody is ever offended. But as we've seen from this letter and even from this passage and from Paul's other letters, uh, he's actually able to balance being gentle with also being unafraid to offend when necessary for the sake of the truth. What these instructions remind us of that we've just read is what he said in chapter 9, verses 19 to 23 of 1 Corinthians, particularly verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. But don't be mistaken. Uh, This is not to say that Paul has no morals, that he's got no standards, and that he's a chameleon, and that he just changes his values to suit the person that he's speaking to. That's not what Paul is saying, and I make that point because people sometimes accuse Paul of being exactly that and of doing exactly that. 
They point to Acts chapter 16, verse 3, saying that Paul circumcised Timothy because of the Jews. But then he can also say in Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no value to you. And people will point to these two passages or these two instances and they'll draw the conclusion that Paul, he actually has no solid foundation for what he believes. He just changes, he just shifts depending on his, who his audience is. But to draw that conclusion from these examples is to miss what Paul is actually doing in both of them. With Timothy, he was an example of where circumcision wasn't an issue of salvation. There there weren't Christians who were there in that area trying to claim that in order to be a Christian, you had to be circumcised. No, Luke records that Paul circumcised Timothy because his father was a Greek and he didn't want to offend the Jews who were in those places. The situation in Galatia was vastly different. There, a party that was trying to say that circumcision was necessary in order for you to be saved as a Christian, that you had to be circumcised. And so this is why Paul hits them so hard right at the beginning of the letter by saying that they've deserted God and turned to a different gospel, which he says in Galatians 1 verse 6. And so even in these examples, we see Paul applying the principles of theological triage. And interestingly, he does so with the very same issue of circumcision. If it's not violating the gospel, and if it's done simply as a cultural observation that means means nothing more, then Paul is happy to circumcise if for the sake of the witness to the local Jews in the area, it would make a difference. But if you start to make it part of the gospel, then you've crossed the line. It was the same in Corinth. If you're talking about the meat itself, then yeah, of course, it's fine to eat. All things belong to God. You don't need to be scared about the meat and it's somehow being laced with sin because of where it came from. But if you engage in the ritual, in idolatry then you've crossed the line. As Christians, we hold fast to the truth. But we're called to give no offense and try to please everyone in such a way that shows that we are ready to sacrifice of ourselves, that we are ready to give up our rights, that we are ready to seek others' good over our own and that we're ready to bend over backwards to love and to serve others in order that they may be saved. That is the disposition of a follower of Christ. Is that true of you? As we come to the end of this whole section of chapters 8 to 10, it's worth us bringing all of this together. We flee idolatry. We lay down our rights. We put others before ourselves. And we do it all 
so that we may see as many as possible one to Christ and we do it all for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. Do I have the right to drink? Sure. I gladly won't if it will result in someone coming to know Christ. Am I allowed to have me time? Yes. Would I give it up for an opportunity to share the gospel if that came up in that slot with an unbelieving friend? Absolutely. Am I allowed to have a home that doesn't have people going through it all the time? Sure. But for the sake of others and in hope that I'll be able to show hospitality to them, I will lay that right down. Do I have the right to spend money on whatever I want? To some extent, yes. Would I lay that down so that I can invest in opportunities for me and for, or for others to be able to share the gospel and see as many people as possible saved? You bet. I don't want to store up treasures here on earth. Do I have a right to complain about poor service? Yes, that's why businesses have complaints departments. Would I lay down that right if it would harm my witness as a Christian? Absolutely. I know this can be difficult to navigate. Even those examples that I've just given, it's not like they're black and white, what you would do. I mean, a good example of this struggle is the way that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and even in our own country are trying to wrestle with how a Christian should respond to the way the government is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. How How are we supposed to think about wearing masks and limitations on churches and, you know, spacing and singing and all of that kind of thing? You know, thankfully, we kind of live in the promised land in Darwin. We don't have to worry about that here. But it's worth appreciating how difficult that's been for others. Some of our brothers and sisters believe that this is the time to stand firm on their rights. Others are saying that this is a time to bend. Again, that's, that's a complex issue to work out, and what the right thing to do has many more factors than simply what I'm just saying here. But at the very least, a part of the consideration should be what is the witness of the church and of Christians going to be as we respond to whether we uphold our rights or whether we lay them down. And so the point is, are you making those calculations? Are you asking those questions? Are you thinking about how you, where you, can bend for the sake and for the purpose of seeing many saved all to the glory of God. Because, you know, each of us could easily just walk out of here and not even give one more thought to how we might put our neighbours before ourselves. 
Now, I know that this is challenging and none of us are going to be perfect at it. And that's why I'm so thankful that we have a perfect example to follow. Let's read the final verse of our passage in chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Firstly, he's giving them instructions that he's, he's saying, hey, I keep these, all right? I'm not trying to give you something that I'm not doing myself. But you notice he also doesn't say that he's the gold standard. He doesn't just simply say, hey, imitate me, because I've got it all together. No, he, he knows that he's not the gold standard. He knows that he himself is following the gold standard. And that's why we can say the same thing as Christians. That's why we, we invite one another to say, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Don't just imitate me because I, you know, I, I think I'm great. No, we, we look to those who, who see and display those attributes of followers of Christ that we want to emulate, that we want to copy because they are also looking to Christ and following and imitating Him. Of course, God, Jesus is the gold standard. He is the one who lived His entire life without fail, fully and completely in everything that He did, even as a child, all to the glory of God. He is the one who had heavenly rights, and he is the one who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. He gladly laid down his life. He gladly laid down his rights and he humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that you and I, by turning from our sin and by trusting in him, might be saved from the wrath of God. He is the one who has even made it possible for us to try and follow his example. Because it is by turning from our sin and putting our faith in him that he renews and changes our hearts. How is it possible that someone could even want to put others before themselves? Well, it's only possible when you see that the God of the universe did that for us. And that when you turn from your own sin, when you turn from living for this world and turning to live for Him, that your whole outlook on life, your whole outlook on what matters completely changes. How could someone possibly even want to lay down legitimate rights that they have and go without a freedom that they have for the sake of someone else? It is only possible when you see that the one who made you, when you see that the one who gave you those rights laid down his so that through his death on the cross and by putting faith in him, your sin might be forgiven. And that now you may look to him and to what he has done 
and do the same for others. None of this is possible without seeing God's love in Jesus and responding to him in faith. Have you done that? Because if you haven't, then it will be a futile exercise to simply try and copy Jesus. This is the message of the gospel. We cannot, in our own strength, in our own sinfulness, imitate Jesus and do good. It is impossible. We need to turn from that sin, put our faith in Jesus, and by His grace, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what Christ calls us to. And it is only after that point that we could possibly even hope to say, as Paul did, imitate me as I imitate Christ. As you turn from sin and love the Saviour, as you seek to be like Him, your life will bring glory to God. This week I had a conversation with a a Christian friend who said that, you know, the purpose of life is the Great Commission. That is, as from Matthew 28, we need to go and make disciples of all nations. Well, I replied to him by saying, well, actually, yes, that is the primary mission that God has given us, but he's given it to us as part of a larger purpose in life. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Will you glorify Him with your life? Let's pray. Our Father, we turn to You and look to You. We lift up our eyes, our heads and our hearts to see the King of glory, to see His great and wonderful grace that has been poured out to us in Jesus. And we ask, Lord, by Your Spirit, be at work in our hearts so that we may bring glory to You in laying down our lives for others, seeking their good over our own, just as Jesus did for us. And we ask this in his marvellous name. Amen.